Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 8th of October 2018 and this is episode 84. On today's programme, I interview Dr Spencer Jones from the University of Wolverhampton on his latest book, At All Costs, which looks at the British Army on the Western Front in 1916. This is published by Helian & Co. I spoke to Spencer from his home in the West Midlands. Hi Spencer, welcome back to the podcast. To give us uh, some context in our discussion today, could you briefly explain what your book is about? Well, uh, hello there, Tom. Uh, Wonderful to be back on, and I'd be delighted to say a little bit more about the book. Uh, The book's called At All Costs, The British Army on the Western Front, 1916, and it's the third in a series of books that I've been putting together uh, over the last few years. The first book covered 1914, the second 1915, and this third volume is about 1916. And I've deliberately called it the British Army in the Western Front 1916 rather than, say, the British Army at the Battle of the Somme. It is written and edited in such a way to try and cover as much of the Western Front as possible. Um, there was, although the Battle of the Somme dominates the British Army's activities in that war, in that year, I should say, it's not the only thing that's going on. So we also have chapters about the logistical um, considerations on the Western Front. We have chapters about trench raiding. We have chapters about um, officer training um, and other activities as well. Because I think the Battle of the Somme can't happen without these other activities actually going on around it. And so we've tried to look at the uh, the, uh, the British Army on the Western Front in 1916 in a pretty broad sense. And also for the first time in this series, I um, made the decision that there would be two chapters that covered non-British or I should say imperial forces and so there's a chapter about the French army on the southern end of the Somme battlefield and there's also a chapter about the German army which reflects on the state of the German army by the end of the Battle of the Somme and I think including these two chapters in the book although it was not necessarily an easy decision and there was some controversy about including them in a book that's subtitled the British army on the western front I think including them actually gives really useful comparison and context for the state of the British army uh, and its battle fighting relative to the French and also the results of the Somme relative to the damage that's inflicted on the German army. So it's a book that studies the British experience on the Western Front in a single year of the war in a very broad sense. To give us some background about what's actually happening in 1916, can you just give us a brief overview of the major events that happened throughout the year? The events of 1916 are actually all set in train uh, at the, uh, to, in the last months of 1915. So just re-establish what's happening there of course 1915 had been an extraordinarily difficult year for the allies and a, a rather good one for the central powers on the ottoman front the ottoman empire had defeated the allied in or all but defeated i should say the allied efforts at gallipoli it was laying siege to kut where indian sixth division was trapped its borders were relatively secure against the british Bulgaria had entered the war on the side of the Central Powers in September and had assisted Austro-Hungary and Germany in overrunning Serbia. Germany and Austro-Hungary had driven very deep into Russia, capturing Russian Poland and uh, pressing into modern-day Ukraine. And on the Western Front, uh, British and French offensives had singly failed to evict the Germans from occupied uh, France and Belgium. And the French in particular had suffered over a million casualties in their attempts to drive the Germans out. The Central Powers were victorious on all fronts um, in 1915, but what they had not done was actually won the war. 
Falcon Hein, commander-in-chief of the German army at the time, earnestly hoped that Russia could be detached politically from the um, Allies, uh, argued that Germany should offer almost any uh, political compromise to eliminate Russia from the war. Of course, the German politicians did not do this, and so Falcon Hein's strategy for 1916 was to turn back to the West and try and eliminate France at the Battle of Verdun, inflicting a war-ending defeat on France, which possibly retrospectively he viewed as an attritional uh, defeat, bleeding France wide. At the time, it may have had elements of um, a, a breakthrough plan as well. But that's a debate that's been covered by um, Dr. Bob Foley. For the British perspective and the, the Allied perspective, the events of 1916 are actually defined by the Chantilly Conference in December 1915. And this was the first really important inter-Allied conference of the war, where the decision was made uh, by the um, four major powers the allies that's britain france italy and russia that a general offensive would be launched in 1916 um more or less simultaneous offensives launched by every national army against germany or austro-hungary so uh, russia italy france and britain would all launch offensives that summer and the idea being that it would overstretch the central powers defense and that a crack would appear somewhere and that this then would be exploited and would indeed end the war. And this was the first time the Allies had coordinated their strategy uh, in this fashion. Uh, ironically enough, it would also be more or less the last time they coordinated their strategy before the formation of the Supreme War Council um, in the end of 1917. But so these two decisions, Germany's to uh, concentrate on the Western Front at Verdun and the Allies to launch the general offensive would define the events of 1916. What it meant for the British... Um, was that Britain was committed to launching a major offensive. This would be on the Somme front, primarily so it could fight side by side with the French. Um, this, of course, went awry because Germany launched the Battle of Verdun um, in February, some months before the British were ready to launch their own offensive. This gradually eroded the amount of French support that could be committed to the British attack at the Somme. And, of course, by the time the British did launch their assault, uh, in July 1916, French support had been reduced to, to a relatively small element on the very southern end of the battlefield. And so these two conflicting um, strategies, the Allied General Offensive and Falkenhayn's attritional strategy, actually intersected. And the, the, the Somme is almost the moment on the Western Front when you see those two uh, having their effect. Of course, we all know the story of the Somme, the battle that raged between July and November 1916, um, an Anglo-French battle, but primarily and predominantly a British battle um, from inception uh, right until its conclusion in the middle of November. And that battle would define Britain's experience um, throughout 1916. And I would argue for, um, in, in the historical memory, it still defines much of what we think of when we think about Britain in the First World War. Now, obviously, 1916, um, much of that memory is, is dominated by uh, public what we might call miss or, or popular uh, misunderstandings around the fighting. So what, what are the broad, um, I suppose, views of the public which are not substantiated by the history? And we'll talk about what perceptions your book seeks to change um, in a minute. I think uh, the, the, the broadest and, and the most enduring um, element in the public memory is that the Battle of the Somme was a one-day battle, that it began and ended on the 1st of July 1916. And there's, it's such a powerful moment in both in literature, in poetry, in film, in every media you can imagine. The, the predominance of that first day 
infamous for being the bloodiest single day in the history of the British Army, continues to to exert enormous power. If we look at the centenary celebrations, or I should say, um, right, celebrations is not quite the right word. If we look at the centenary events in uh, 2016, all the focus was upon the 1st of July. And there's a sense, I think, that the world, or at least the British world, changed or even ended on the 1st of July. And, and this idea stretches as far back, at least as James Edmonds, the official historian, who wrote a, a really quite evocative chapter about the 1st of July in the official history, which ends with um, the attack just about to begin. It's a few minutes before a zero hour, uh, the sun shining um, there's this sort of sense of Edwardian summer about to be brought to an end. And of course, as readers, we know it's going to end in tragedy and disaster. And that enduring power of the first day of the Sommies is really, really hard to shake. And I think it still dominates everything that um, yeah, the public thinks about when it thinks not just of the Somme, but also of the First World War as well. I wouldn't necessarily say that the book sets out to challenge um, the uh, the image of the first of the first of july because the, it's so powerful and it's so enshrined i don't think that's going to happen in uh, in any sort of um perhaps in my lifetime i also think that the it's worth acknowledging that this was a truly catastrophic day for the british army and i think sometimes when we're keen to emphasize that the british army improved and um, bettered itself and became more and more militarily effective, we, we forget just how painful its learning process could be. What the book does do, though, is examine the first the 1st of July from several perspectives um, to show that it wasn't always as the public image imagines. It wasn't always just lines of overburdened infantry marching slowly to their doom. So there's four chapters that take a look at aspects of the 1st of July. There's one that studies 32nd Division, of course, which made a, a terrible end, um, suffered a very bloody repulse. 15th Corps, which did rather better. 13th Corps, which did very well indeed. And also French 20th Corps, which did very well indeed. And nevertheless, these, even these formations that did very well and captured their objectives still had to go through some very severe fighting. And I think looking at just how complicated the 1st of July was and the preparations for it and the, the way it was fought, I'm not saying it would challenge this view that it was an unmitigated disaster because it was ultimately a complete disaster. But I hope it gives readers and um, students and those who studied the book a, a perception of just how complicated military operations are and that even in the midst of a complete you know, disaster, a complete fiasco in some sec sectors, there was still opportunity um, at times for the British to achieve a victory or snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Uh, and I think, or I hope at least, that some of the chapters in this book gives fresh thinking about how that first, of, first day played out. But of course, there's a lot more than just a study of the first day in the book as well. So what else does the book um, look at, which is a useful segue into, the, into that question? <laughs> well, the book covers a, a, a quite a range of topics. Um, and I, I really wanted this book to look from the top right down to the bottom and that this is a, a, of the subject. And this is a theme that I've tried to um, put into previous volumes as well. If we just talk about the contents for a, 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 in, in a broad sense, we start with a, a study of the grand strategy that underpinned um, the, the British offensive on the Somme. And that, of course, involves a discussion of Chantilly, the war plans of 1916, primarily the Allied war plans, and Britain's role in this general offensive. There's a consideration of 
uh, as a chapter, studying William Robertson, who'd, of course, become chief of the Imperial General Staff at the end of 1915, and his role in um, both arguing in favour of maintaining the Battle of the Somme, even when the battle was uh, not proceeding to plan in its opening weeks, and about how he campaigned very, very strongly for a, what we might term a Germany-first strategy, rather than um, concentrating on the Ottoman Empire. No book um, on the Battle of the Somme or that covers the Battle of the Somme could be complete without some consideration of Douglas Haig as a commander. And uh, we have a chapter um, examining him and, and rather breaking down the debate that's around him and, and you know, a really good synthesis, I think, of the current strands of thinking. Um, there's a discussion of British intelligence and what they knew about the Battle of, the, uh, Battle of Verdun um, and how news from Verdun, which at times was fragmented and was not always... Um, entirely clear how news from Verdun influenced British planning operations and, and the speed of British operations at the Battle of the Somme. And that digs into one of the enduring questions about the extent to which the Somme um, either relieved pressure on the French or at least was designed to do so. There's a, a very interesting chapter about the change in the supply network prior to the Battle of the Somme. So this is early 1916, uh, the development of the rail, rail and canal links to supply the army. Because, of course, without that logistic infrastructure, there's no prospect that the army can actually conduct an offensive. And I think we're... Um, and I, I say this myself as a uh, historian who primarily looks at tactics and operations. It's very easy to forget the importance of logistics. So this chapter is a very uh, timely inclusion. There's a study uh, of, of what I might say as a, something of a minority view study examining the plans for the preparatory bombardment, which looks at um, you know, how the Royal Artillery prepared for it, how they planned for it, and makes a, a, a rather strong case that the Royal Artillery had misinterpreted lessons it was drawing from studying French battles um, and, and takes a rather different view perhaps to um, some of the work, including some of my own, uh, that has argued the Royal Artillery was learning quite quickly at this stage. This art chapter instead argues there was much to learn. There's also some study of trench raiding because although um, the Battle of the Somme dominates the British Army's efforts in 16, um, on quieter sectors of the front, such as around Epen and so on, trench raiding is the main way of keeping the Germans busy. And so we have two chapters about trench raiding, one that looks at trench raiding in its broadest sense, and another that looks at a German trench raid at La Boiselle in April 1916 and the consequences for it. And this German trench raid was extraordinarily effective against the British, so much so that it became a model in some ways for the British to follow, and there's a study of that included. We then move into a, a series of more, perhaps more traditional battle studies, operational studies. Four of them look at, as I previously mentioned, look at the 1st of July primarily. So we have a chapter about Henry Horn as a corps commander and his role in preparing 15th Corps operations opposite Free Corps, uh, 13th Corps and the attack at Montauban, uh, French 20th Corps and its preparations for the Battle of the Somme and indeed its performance on the first day, and 32nd Division, which um, had a very, very rough time on the 1st of July and what they learned from their defeat on that day. There's also a study of imperial contribution. So um, we have a, a chapter about the Anzacs on the Poziers Ridge, uh, which makes a strong case that the Anzacs uh, really did not conduct this campaign in a particularly efficient way, a needlessly costly way, uh, and a way that you repeated many errors the British had in some ways eliminated from their own armies. And a chapter about the Canadians uh, and their efforts in front of Regina Trench in October 1916, which again was a number of setbacks similar to the Australian experience on Poitiers 
bridge. But in this case, the Canadians learned um, from their mistakes and improved their methods. Again, just as I mentioned, there was that no book on the Somme would be complete without a chapter on Douglas Haig. We have a chapter about early tank tactical doctrine and training, which is an interesting chapter because it, it studies tanks from their inception and examines exactly how you go about training crews on a machine that has never seen action before and is entirely unknown. And uh, these sort of ad hoc methods in which this was uh, promoted to try and make the tanks ready for battle in um, in September 1916. There's then two chapters that study the officer corps in various ways. We have a chapter examining the officer training corps and how it provided um, the young officers who would largely lead the new army battalions uh, on, in July 1916. How had they been prepared? How had they been selected? What you know? Did, did they fulfil the uh, the public school ethos um, stereotype of of brave but dim, as of course famously put forward by George in Blackadder? And of course, the argument um, goes very much against them. And combining with that, we have a chapter examining battalion command on the Somme um, through a series of case studies showing just what could what could a battalion commander do in battle? What kind of decisions could he make? How could he influence the battle? And it has a series of case studies looking at different battalion COs and. What what they actually did in battle, some with success uh, and some um, without. There's then, uh, to finish our battle study, um, there's a chapter examining the, ger- the state of the German army at the end of the Battle of the Somme. And I think that many readers will find that particularly interesting. It doesn't so much get into the topic of casualties, but instead it looks very much at the psychological state um, and, and the state of the for the efficiency of divisions that have passed through the Battle of the Somme in 1916. And it presents some you know, pretty strong findings that psychologically the German army was very badly damaged by the Somme. Perhaps it, the psychological damage it received was perhaps even greater than the physical casualties it suffered. And finally, finishing the, the, the series are two books that, uh, sorry, two chapters, I should say, that look at the Somme and, uh, and its legacy. A chapter examining the commemoration of the battle from uh, 1919, the end of the war, right up until the centenary in 2016. And this is a broad view of commemoration, studying why the Tietvan Memorial was created, why it looks the way it does, and also examining some of the key literature that was uh, written about the Somme, ranging from very early memoirs that studied the battle right up to modern work on it, such as Martin Middlebrook's seminal, The First Day of the Somme. And finally, we have a chapter from uh, Professor Brian Bond to finish, uh, which is his personal reflections on a lifetime of having studied the Battle of the Somme, connecting them to some of the war memoirs uh, that he studied. And it's a um, fitting end, I think, for a very senior historian to just reflect upon almost 50 years, really, of studying this battle and what he feels has changed in that time and so it's a quite a breathless overview but i hope that gives you an impression that this this is a pretty broad scope uh, study so when you look at this 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 huge um collection of, of very uh, powerful essays by eminent historians what broad themes emerge from uh, i suppose this this collective work I, I would first of all um, state what it doesn't do, and uh, one thing it doesn't do is it does not radically revise our understanding of the Somme. This is, um, you know, I think the Somme has been so picked over, it's very difficult for us to actually find something completely brand new. But what I do think it com- comes across very strongly are uh, really um, three key themes, I'd say. The first is the sheer inexperience of the British Army. And we often say this, we often say, oh, the British Army was not ready for mass warfare in 1916, and I have the experience of it. And certainly when I produced the 1915 book, I, I thought, well, actually, the army's learned quite a lot about uh, mass warfare in 15. But having studied the Somme in depth now, I realised that although the, the experience of 15 was a useful stepping stone, it was only that, and that there was so much more to learn. Um, you have divisions, you have batteries, battalions who've uh, 
completely inexperienced, as green as grass, as our American cousins would say, and suddenly thrown into an extremely high-intensity, prolonged battle against a first-rate enemy. And that experience is really, really highlighted in this. There's, there's a, a quote, and indeed it's actually where the book takes its title from, from Ivor Maxey, where he's, uh, he writes to Archibald Montgomery in July and in some ways, he, he sort of bemoans the, uh, the the reckless courage of the new army and says that the, if you order a normal battalion to take a place at all costs, it will literally obey your order. But at the same time, he goes on to say, but they, they're, not, they're not doing it with any great tactical sense. There's tremendous courage here, but it goes a little bit. It needs a little bit of uh, canniness to really make it work as well. And that inexperience extends to almost every level of the British Army. You have inexperienced soldiers being commanded by inexperienced officers, being commanded by corps and divisional COs who themselves have seen very little action. And it's inevitable that there will be difficulties and problems here. So I think inexperience is a huge theme. I think inconsistency is the second great theme. Just looking at the different formations, be they British Corps, British Divisions, uh, French Corps, um, Australian, Canadians, we see a multitude of ways of dealing uh, with problems and dealing with battlefield situations. And here we see, it's, I, I hesitate to get too much into the arguments about doctrine, but we see a real absence of method. Um, every division, every corps has its own way of going about things. There's a great deal of flexibility, which I think stems them. Um, so, yeah, largely from the British Army's pre-war thinking and this desire for flexibility. But on the Somme, it does mean that, that you sometimes, it's rather like watching a car accident in slow motion. You read about a division or a corps preparing to do something and you know it's not going to work because, of course, it's failed for other formations and yet they do it anyway. And we, so we see inconsistency of method and the way that formations learn and indeed individuals learn, it's very inconsistent. Um, some learn very rapidly. Some seem to learn not at all. Uh, some you know, sort of fall somewhere between the two stools. And so we see a, when we talk about the British Army getting better, uh, across the Battle of the Somme. I think we're right to say that. I think the aggregate of the f divisions are getting better. But it's an inconsistent and hesitant process. And, um, you know, when you talk about learning curve, it's almost like a learning roller coaster on the Somme, peaks and troughs. Um, and it varies very much for each individual formation. So we've, we've talked about inexperience and inconsistency, but I think the third theme that comes out is the sheer intensity of the battle for both British and German forces. This is a truly cataclysmic um, engagement. Of course, it's the first time the British have fought the main enemy in the main theatre of the First World War and made a main effort here. Um, and it's sustained, of course, over months, from July to November. In some ways, I think Battle of the Somme is misleading. Perhaps the Somme campaign would be a better way of approaching it. But the, the intensity of this battle, the destruction um, inflicted on both armies and, of course, on the surrounding countryside is absolutely enormous. This is a, a brutally hard campaign. And I think a theme that does come out from this book is just how much damage the German army suffers in holding the line. It, this isn't the first uh, time a work's really stood this. There's been some very good recent work by Jack Sheldon, for example, on the German defences of the Somme. But it comes across very strongly in both chapters studying the British and the German experience that the German army has to make enormous exertion to hold the line at the Somme. And it can only do so at the cost of enormous casualties to itself. So we have three eyes, really. Um, inexperience, inconsistency and intensity. And I think those three themes run like a golden thread through all of the chapters uh, that study the battle itself. 
So when we think of another I, impact, what do you think the mm. impact of the year's fighting was on the three main combatants? I know your book focuses predominantly on the British, but obviously there's some interesting um, other perspectives on the French and Germans within that. Uh, the impact on the, the armies is quite distinct and, and quite interesting. Despite the, the damage that the British army suffers, and of course it does suffer very heavy casualties, um, the British army comes away from the Battle of the Somme better in many ways than it was when it entered it. It's more experienced, it's refined many of its methods, and as uh, yeah, th those who've managed to survive the conflagration have gained invaluable experience. And of course that goes from the, uh, the top of command right down to uh, private soldiers who've, who've gone through it. The army of, of, 19, of November 1916, as compared to July 1916, is a much better, it's much better at fighting, it's much more experienced, it's a much more formidable instrument. Of course, the fact that it's had to do that, it's only reached this stage by going through a crucible of battle that has costed hundreds of thousands of casualties uh, can't be neglected or ignored. But we really do see, despite my comment earlier about inconsistency in experience, by the end of the Somme, the British Army is experienced. It's become battle-hardened uh, across all levels. And that's not just about the, the fighting infantrymen. It's about the artillery, about the air force. It's about the logistics, about the command, intelligence. Every aspect of the army has um, you know, learned in the hard school of war and the pitiless school of war as well. And it's made the British Army a much more formidable fighting force than it was at the outset of the year. And this, of course, is recognised by both the French and the Germans, whereas British efforts in 1915 had been, had been pretty disastrous. One struggles to find a, a British land battle, which is a clear victory uh, on any front in 1915. Um, and the Germans had, had largely concluded they had little to fear from British offences by the end of 1915. By the end of 1916, that is not the case. It's clear that Britain is now a very, very formidable opponent for Germany and will continue to be so as the empire continues to mobilise, continues to send troops, continues to send weapons. So we see the impact on the British army is um, leaving aside the terrible casualties it suffers. Is it emerges from that crucible with its weaker elements have been improved, its experience has, uh, has, has developed enormously, it's become a much more formidable and dangerous opponent for Germany. I think the French um, army is interesting in this. The French, of course, um, had gone through a torrid 1914 and 1915, suffering catastrophic casualties, um, especially in 1915. 1915 was the second bloodiest year of the war for uh, the, the, the French army, only exceeded by 1918 terrible time but it had emerged France had already gone through that crucible process I mentioned it had already developed into a much harder fighting better organized army than it had been in 1915 again it had paid for those lessons in blood but he put those lessons to good use on the Somme and um, although French I think there's a an image that has been promoted a little bit recently that the French are flawless on the Somme and I, I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, but the French army fights well on the Somme. It performs particularly well when one considers the main French effort is, of course, focused at Verdun during the majority of this period. But French formations on the Somme do perform well and prove that the French army has much improved its own offensive methods from, from its disastrous efforts um, in 1915. One thing I will say that is only really hinted at in this book, but I think it's an interesting um, line of thought anyway is that the strange sense of euphoria that begins to settle on the French army uh, in early 1917 in the aftermath of the Somme uh, and indeed across the French public and 
Uh, I'm, of course, uh, I'm not the first to make this point. It's been argued by various works studying the French. I mean, the French army mutinies of April 17, but both Verdun and the Somme are seen by the French as a, a, a significant victories, as a turning point, um, and combined with the um, promise of the Nouvelle Offensive and then the declaration of war by the Americans in April 1917, French mood almost reaches a, a, a critical mass, um, and, and this in some ways then contributes to the, uh, the tremendous disappointments of the Nouvelle Offensive. But if we actually look at the Nouvelle Offensive, many of the methods used there are uh, refinements from uh, Verdun and the Somme, so that the French refine their methods, but perhaps um, because they were at a, a greater stage of advancement than the British Army, the Sommies of um, it does not develop them in quite the same way as the British. They're already at that stage. And of course, Verdun is the battle that dominates the French experience. And for the Germans, um, and I, I think this is brought out very clearly in the book, the German army is, is battered by the Somme. In terms of raw casualties, we can debate this almost endlessly about exact uh, losses. I'm not sure it's entirely helpful anymore. But what the the uh, chapter in the book and indeed other work by historians studying German sources have brought out is the psychological damage that the German army suffers in 1916. And remember, of course, that the Somme is not taking place in a vacuum. I mentioned Verdun already, but of course, there's also the Brusilov offensive in the east and a series of Italian offensives across the Onzonzo River uh, in Italy. And all of this strains the German army, not to breaking point, but it certainly pushes it rather close. And at times in September 1916, the German army is perilously short of reserves on the Western Front. And the result of this is that divisions that have already been put through the Somme once get put through it again and in, in some cases again. And the Germans, by the middle stage of the Battle of the Somme, begin to realise that they can't transfer over uh, Eastern Front divisions, the Eastern Front just isn't um, a, a good preparation for the intensity of the West, and that divisions that are asked to go through Verdun and the Somme repeatedly simply get worn out. Um, they, they can't go on. Um, and much of this damage, as well as being physical, of course, is also psychological. And there's a, there's a changed perception in the German army by the end of 1916 that the war has turned against them. Um, and yes, they can be proud that they've held the line. They've, the German army undoubtedly fights extraordinarily well at the Somme, and a lesser army would have, would have caved in. But there is a psychological step change in the German army, and indeed um, perhaps in the German public, that um, comes from the battles of 1916, that the war is not going in their favour, and that it's only going to get harder. And this goes right back to the British point. The British Army, which had been a negligible factor on the Western Front in 1915, has suddenly become a very formidable factor indeed. And the ability of the uh, British Army to fight a rich man's war with constant artillery fire, the skies are full of aircraft, you know, relentless pressure from the British is a shock to the Germans. And they realise that just they already know the French are a formidable opponent. Now they have the British who are formidable as well. And the, all these factors are a point towards a very difficult 1917 uh, for the German army. And I think those three factors, undeniable improvement in the fighting ability of the British, the solidification of proven French methods and that psychological shock to the Germans are the three big changes um, or three big factors that come out of 1916 for the um, combatant powers. Now, at the moment, we're, we're um, doing the commemorations around the 100 days and the final uh, offences and final um, parts of the, of the Great War. And the argument yeah. is that 1916 was the foundations out of which final victory was, was developed. Do you subscribe to that view in terms of, of what you've looked at in 1916 and the British Army's development from that? I actually do. And 
Of course, Douglas Haig, um, his final dispatch says that for to find the victory of 1918, we have to look at the battles of 1617. I think something that comes out of the book is that in 1916, Haig really did hope for something rather different than just an attritional battle. He really did hope that the, the German line would crack. He hoped it would be a breakthrough battle. In the end, it didn't become that, um, and he later viewed it as an attritional battle. But I do think that uh, he is right in that to understand why the German army finally crumbles in 1918, one has to look at the, the great battles of 16 and 17, and starting, of course, with 16. Um, to go back to a point I I just made the British army enters this battle with a great deal to prove. It's um, not highly regarded by its German opponents. It, arguably, it's not particularly highly regarded by its French allies either. And yet, of course, by the end of this battle, it's uh, it's rocked the Germans back on their heels, and it's proven to the French that it's capable of conducting very serious, sustained, and a high-intensity operations. And an important thing to remember is that. The end of 1916 and that, that huge uh, British effort does not represent the end of, of Britain's resources by any means. The, the British Army will continue to grow in strength uh, through part of 1917. It will peak in 1917. The Germans are aware of this and the ability of the British to maintain pressure um, through the through the both Battle of the Somme and beyond is absolutely essential. Not only does it destroy the German um, you know, fighting power in a physical sense, it erodes its um, psychological strength as well already in 1916 we find german artillery batteries having to impress captured russian field guns or captured belgian fortress guns to make up for the uh, losses they're suffering during counter battery duels and we find german soldiers depressed about the constant ability of the british to uh, rain artillery fire upon their positions we find german pilots depressed about the number of british and french aircraft in the skies over the somme there's a sense that this is a battle that's turning against them and i think and I, I, it's an interesting way about how the First World War and the Second World War are perceived, because I think the Somme is a huge turning point for the First World War. To borrow Winston Churchill's phrase when he described the Battle of El Alamein, it's not the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning. After uh, the Battle of the Somme's finished, the, the tone of the war, the tide of the war has undoubtedly turned and Germany will have um, you know, it, it's it's moments in 1917 and indeed 1918, but the tide has turned and Germany never quite manages to turn it back. And I think in that sense, it's useful to see the Somme campaign or the Battle of the Somme in, in similar terms to the great battles uh, on the Eastern Front in the Second World War. For example, when we think of the Battle of Stalingrad, a hugely costly battle uh, between Russian and German forces in late 1942 and early 1943, uh, ultimately ends in a Russian victory, albeit an extremely costly one. We, we see that as a great turning point, even though it's a tremendously attritional battle. And the battle that immediately f follows it, um, the Battle of Kharkov, actually ends in a German victory, a striking German victory. But it's still a turning point. It takes the Russians another uh, two years to actually evict the Germans uh, from Soviet soil, but from that point on, this tide of the war has turned. And I think we can see the Battle of the Somme in a similar way, an enormously violent, attritional struggle that does not break the German army. The German army is still capable of, of mounting extremely um, fierce resistance and will continue to be so until almost the, the last shots of the war. But it turns the tide against it. Germany can't make good the casualties it suffered amongst its most experienced troops. It can't produce the British uh, and French any longer. And it's increasingly pushed onto um, a psychological footing where it has to pit flesh and blood against allied machines. And that is a, a position where it asks an awful lot of its soldiers. 
And we can see, those of you who study the Second World War, can see the parallels, perhaps, with the um, German army on the Eastern Front after Stalingrad. A sense that something might happen, that the war might be won somewhere, somehow, but no particular view of how it will be done on that front. And I think we see that, that change in the German attitude in the aftermath of the Battle of the Somme. And I think that's why the Battle of the Somme is absolutely... Um, the first nail in the coffin of the old imperial German army. That coffin won't be closed upon it until 1918. That's when the, the Germans are finally broken. But that process of breaking the German army begins at the Battle of the Somme, and it culminates in November 1918. And finally, uh, Spencer, where is your book available from? Well, to steal a, a cheesy quote, it's available wherever good books are sold. Um, but they, if you would like a copy direct, you can purchase it from Amazon.co.uk. Uh, Just search for uh, at all costs Spencer Jones. Or you can buy it direct from the publishers at Helion.co.uk. That's H-E-L-I-O-N.co.uk. Uh, it's also available um, in a variety of uh, military bookshops. Uh, and if you'd like a signed copy, you can always get in touch with me. <laughs> Spencer, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>